Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. We all have longstanding painful patterns of behavior, long-running inner storylines, ancient mental habits that can cause us to react disproportionately or inappropriately. As they sometimes say in uh, psychological circles, if it's hysterical, it's historical. My guest today has a term for this. She calls it long-standing recurring painful patterns, or LRPPs, or she calls them in a word that's not very mellifluous, but it's kind of funny, LERPs. Dr. Radley Wanninger is a clinical psychologist, psychotherapist, and a teacher of Buddhist meditation and Buddhist psychology. She has a new book called Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and Freedom at Last. In this conversation, we talked about how to recognize a problematic pattern or when you've been lerped, why Dr. Weininger believes that Buddhism and Western psychology, when practiced together, can help us deal with these recurring patterns, unpacking the oft-used word these days, trauma, the psychological term mismatch and how it relates to childhood trauma or hurt, and how to practice meditation in order to tolerate discomfort. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. 
Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. Dr. Rodalie Wanninger, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. All right, let's start here. What is a LERP? Hmm. A LERP is a long-standing recurrent painful pattern. And this term came out of a discussion with my mentor, Jack Cornfield. We actually talked about it for probably hmm, two decades. And we talked about complexes, samskaras, kleshas, those patterns that are there in our psyche and that get triggered, but that lead back way into our childhood or maybe even further. And Jack asked me one day, could you find a new word for it? Because complexes are kind of old fashioned. He thought nobody knows anymore what a complex is. And so I came up with long-standing recurrent painful patterns. And then he said, oh, this is quite long. And then I said, how about LERP? <laughs> and, <I'm, laughs> and because it's like an onomatopoeia, you know, it feels <laughs> like it sounds. You, know, you get LERP, you get slimed. You know, it's something that glitches over you. Mm -hmm. And I noticed with my students and clients that they really love the LERP, you know, and they started using it. Even some of my colleagues are now using that word. So I thought, hmm, maybe that's good. And then my Shambhala editor liked it. So I stuck with it. Yeah, it sounds like a bad person from a kid's <laughs> movie. Just to double back for a second, you used some Buddhist terms there when you were talking about complexes. You, were, you also mentioned some Buddhist words. Can you define those Buddhist terms just so people don't get lost? Mm -hmm. I think I used the word samskara or shankara, which is uh, Pali and which are patterns that are in our mind stream. Buddhists believe that there is something before and after we are born, like a mind essence, you might say a residue from our life that goes from lifetime to lifetime. And so even though Jung and Freud thought that these patterns are from our childhood, Buddhists think, well, they're even way older. They might have gone through lifetimes. And whoever knows. I just think we all just know that they're very old. So to be clear, I don't need to believe in rebirth in order to know that I've got some lerps lurking. Not at all. They lurk anyhow. I think it does help, though, to know that they are old. Because, you know, if we just stay in the present moment, like, we do when we talk about mindfulness, moment by moment, non-judgmental attention, you know, which is John Kabat-Zinn's definition. We could just say, well, why not just deal with those triggers in the present moment? But it seems many of us don't feel quite understood by that. You know, oh, there is something deeper going on than just the moment by moment dealing with it. And even though the moment-by-moment moment dealing, noticing the arising, the falling away is very, very important, and that's how we work with them in the present moment, it is helpful to notice 
oh, I have this pattern here. For example, I might have a pattern from my childhood around abandonment or rejection. And so when something like that happens in the present moment, I often feel like more than I should triggered. My emotions are bigger. My body sensations are bigger. And I wonder why am I so out of source? Why does this last for days and sit in my body? So then it actually does help me at least to not wallow in the past, you know, not start a psychoanalysis, but to kind of tag it. Oh, that's that one. No wonder I feel that way. And then we can feel a sense of compassion for this lurkedness in ourselves. You raise an interesting point there because I think there's sometimes perhaps a tension between the mindfulness slash Buddhist approach to difficult stuff in our minds and a psychoanalytical approach. The former, the Buddhist slash mindfulness approach, really focuses on what's happening right now. Right. And the psychoanalytical or psychological approach would be looking, you know, for example, at your childhood. And so it sounds like you're trying to marry the two. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't think I'm the only one. You know, you might have noticed that, at least here in Spirit Walk, a lot of the teachers are also psychologists or marriage family therapists or have quite a bit of psychological training. So I think we have wisened up here in the West that we need both. I think in the past, when I started, 1980, there was this big, deep gulch between the two camps. I remember I started therapy, gosh, yeah, around 1982. I started therapy and meditation basically at the same time. And so it was like one hand didn't know what the other one was doing. And I, for myself, felt, no, they belong together. You know, we need both. I need to know what happened, talk about it, feel it, understand it, which more the psychodynamic or many other psychological approaches would do. And also there is this process that we need to just see for what it is. It is a process of arising and passing through. And in a way that was missed by the psychodynamic folks who thought, well, if we just talk enough again and again and again about what our mothers did or fathers or whoever, what happened then somehow this makes unconscious conscious and we can move on in our merry ways. But that didn't see that there was like an habitual pattern of behaving that had developed. And that we actually also need this process approach of mindfulness to work with these patterns and these strong feelings when they come up. Does that make sense to you? It makes a lot of sense. And let me just pick up on your mention of these patterns. Do all of us have LERPs and what causes them? Well, you know, I don't know each and every person, but... I might say I haven't seen anybody without a LERP. They might be hiding somewhere, but I haven't met them yet. So I suspect that most people have some LERPs and some of them are smaller and some of them are bigger. 
And at least from a psychological lens, they do arise in our childhood. And that doesn't mean they are not also there in a past life or in whatever there is beforehand. And so we don't know. You know, I think I'm a little bit agnostic there. My mind can't wrap around what exactly is happening there. I can only have assumptions. But I think, for example, if we were treated a certain way as children, if there's a pattern of fear or of anger, of being left out, of being not seen, of being treated badly, that then often repeats itself. That often is very frustrating for people. It's a sense of déjà vu. You know, why am I here again? Why do I have these old feelings again? And why do these old feelings really throw me off course? One of my actually psychoanalyst friends said it's if we hit a complex or a lerp, it's as if we put our finger into an electric outlet. You know, we get this shock. And, you know, there are different gradations of being shocked. So I think at the core of a lerp is trauma. And so whether this trauma is in this life or in another life, we don't know, probably in both. If there was something in a past life, it probably will reappear in our childhoods. But that's just a guess. Let me pick up on your mention of the word trauma, because this is a word that my team and I talk about a lot, because I sometimes worry that, of course, the word trauma is going to be deeply, unfortunately, resonant for many, many people. But for me personally, it's not. And I don't think I'm alone in this. And so when I was reading up on you and I saw that your argument was that LERPs are based in trauma, I was wondering, well, Hunt, I don't believe I had any childhood trauma, at least as I understand that term, which let me just leave the door open for me misunderstanding the term because there's plenty of precedent for that. So I'm just curious, are these LERPs always based in trauma? And what do you mean by trauma? Right. And I think, you know, the understanding of trauma has changed over time. And you are very right to say that maybe the term is overused. It's like every person who feels somebody else looks at them the wrong way, feel traumatized, you know. So definitely one has to be careful with that. Maybe we should rather say a hurt, you know, a deep hurt to the heart or the soul. And many people do have that. And it doesn't have to be just that you had a parent die or you were physically or sexually abused or, you know, there is there are patterns, for example, of not being recognized, you know, for who we are in our family, you know, so maybe our parents just had a certain idea of what kind of child they wanted and didn't see who we were. And if we were sensitive little critters, then that can be painful. And I don't know if that would qualify as trauma, but it's definitely hurtful. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Just to add an example, and let me see if providing this example proves that I've understood or the opposite. I was once in the couples counseling with my wife and this incredible couples counselor we're working with by the way, his name is Michael Vincent Miller, fantastic human, was asking us both about our childhoods in one of the early sessions. And let me step back and say that one of the reasons why he was probing my childhood is we're trying to figure out 
to get to the root of one of my weak spots, which is that I can be a little, as it's been called, emotionally guarded. And he was trying to figure out, like, what were my parents like? And and my parents were ex-hippies, super warm, always encouraging me to voice my opinions and talk about my feelings. And I was sort of musing aloud about how I, I can't, I don't think it was at home. And then I realized Actually, you know, when I went to junior high, I encountered a kind of masculinity that was very harsh. There was a lot of bullying, and I think I shut down around that period, and it lasted for a long, long time. And so to me, that's, I don't know if I would call it a trauma, but it was a kind of wound or hurt or a tricky experience that ramified throughout the years. Well, just to take that example, I could also imagine Two things, you know, one thing is I, I had quite a few clients whose parents were hippies or ex-hippies, and sometimes those circumstances felt a little chaotic. And then they, as a reaction, became more uptight, or they felt that their parents' kind of touchy-feeliness wasn't preparing them, let's say, for the roughness of junior high or high school. So, you know, sometimes it's just what we call it. It's actually a beautiful word in psychology, a mismatch. You know, it's not that something really was done wrong. There was something mismatched. And, you know, sometimes we just have children who seem oddly matched with their parents. <laughs> And it's nobody's fault, really. You, they just don't get each other. We don't necessarily have to have somebody to blame there. It's just a mismatch. The key doesn't fit into the hole. It doesn't connect. And that can be a chronically alienating experience. So you are right. We shouldn't overuse the word trauma. And maybe hurt is a better word. Well, I don't want to dwell too long on being persnickety about language, nor do I want to dwell too long on my own personal story, other than to say that my house was not, I wish it was more chaotic. My parents were pretty strict. They they went from being hippies to being academic physicians, so they were pretty buttoned up. Anyway, so let's get to the core contention of your book, which is that, to use your term here, freedom is possible. And you outline 12 steps. So if you're cool with it, I would love to take a spin through these steps one by one. How does that sound? That sounds really good. Okay, so step number one will be familiar to anybody who knows anything about the 12 steps, which is recognizing what's going on, recognizing your lurk. Can you say a little bit about how we could go about seeing our patterns? Often when, when we get lurked, slimed, however we might imagine it, we feel out of control. You know, it just feels, what is going on? And so when we can put a name to it without self-pity, just as recognizing, that feels often like a relief. Oh, that's what it is. You know, if somebody disinvites me from a birthday party and my old abandonment fears come up, I can say, yeah, you know, I understand that I reacted that way because that is actually an old thing for me to be excluded or something like that. But how to recognize? First, I think we recognize often in our bodies. You know, I think everybody is a little different, but most people, I would say, recognize in their body that something is off. 
you know, there's a tightness in the chest. There's a little bit like a fist in the stomach. There might be, uh, you know, our jaw suddenly becomes rigid. We feel hot or cold. We feel like a loss of energy or too much energy when we get really angry. There is something happening in the body. And the more we can just be with the felt sense of what is, there's already a little bit of groundedness in that. And the next one would be strong emotions, like, again, the disinviting from a birthday party to notice, oh, yeah, anger. There is, again, like in mindfulness, anger arising, anger falling away. There it is. But also, oh, it's a big anger. And it's an anger maybe that seems like a little bit too much. Or we get spooked, afraid, maybe a little bit more than we would expect. Or we get really down. There is this mood. Often there is this mood that just comes over a person and that just doesn't leave for a while. That a mood is often a really good sign that we have gotten lurped. And also rumination, when our mind goes in circles and we wake up at three in the morning, our mind is churning and all the worst thoughts are coming up again and again. And, you know, that we are different. You know, some people tend more to ruminate. Others feel things very strongly in their bodies. Others get very quickly emotional or all of the above. Then there are certain what we call PTSD symptoms, trauma symptoms, like a bit of dissociation, feeling suddenly removed, or a bit of tunnel vision. So that might be a sign or a generalization. Maybe one thing is going wrong. You know, our car breaks down and we feel the world is going apart. That often happens. Or one person is mean to us and then we think all people are mean. And I think this can happen especially nowadays where the background field of the world is a bit inflamed. We have gone through COVID, there is a war, in the background is climate change looming with a quite uncertain future. So I think that often brings up those lerps that people have around lack of safety, unpredictability. And so it can much easier happen that people are less resilient, that they bounce back a lot less fast. And that's something I have been seeing a lot recently in amongst my clients and students. Does that make it clear, though, to you? It does. And I think I really resonate with this kind of satisfaction that one can feel when one sees a pattern clearly. And all of those techniques that you just referenced from mindfulness to noticing that you're generalizing, for example, or the more trauma-based symptoms like the tunnel vision, those are all really helpful. But I, I could imagine noticing all of that, but not actually being able to pinpoint what was it in my past that set all of this in motion. I'm 50 and only now am I seeing certain things about my various problematic patterns. So it's not necessarily easy to do. Yeah, it's not 
easy to do, but I think especially if we go through the body, where does this feeling of nausea in the tummy or that feeling of feeling like a monkey is sitting in our back or the sense of tightness around our head, like a tight metal bend or, you know, something like that. And if we go back to where do we know that from? I find many people can relate to that. Maybe not everybody, but maybe we do need to be encouraged to look back because I think often we are kind of wanting to be practical and get it over with. Maybe I should just move on, turn the TV on, look at my devices, get my glass of whiskey, whatever we are doing, right? To distract ourselves when we feel the sense of discomfort. But then often if we are used to at that point, distracting ourselves. And I think, do you remember that Buddhist cycle of life, the cycle of becoming? And I think it is at Vedana, at the feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, that there is a chance to change one's karma, you might say. When we realize, oh yeah, really uncomfortable. And so then you can just say, oh, okay, just deal with it mindfully or distract ourselves, which many more people do. Or we can put a hand on our heart and say, well, let's see what's really going on. And the thing is, when we do see what's really going on, especially, let's say, resting in, in the felt sense of it, then there is a certain calming down. Being in the felt sense of the body and resting there, being able to tolerate our feelings without wallowing in them, no self-pity, just being with, then the rumination actually calms down considerably. It's quite amazing. Let me press you on this just gently, because I completely agree and have had the experience many times of noticing I'm freaking out about one thing or another, and instead of reaching for whiskey or Netflix or whatever, sometimes I wise up and, you know, just sit with it for a little while. The turning into it is actually soothing in a, in a surprising way. However, I don't know that that would bring me to an answer about what exactly my lerp or problematic pattern is and what caused it. I guess he said two moves. We don't have to each time we experience something come back to the pattern. But so many of us have the sense of deja vu. Why is this happening again? And then if that is the case, then it might be worthwhile to sit down. You know, why am I again feeling left out or excluded or... Why am I also ending up in situations where I'm in this dire competition with somebody? Then it might be worthwhile to look. Because otherwise, we can become sitting ducks to our lerps. And I guess that's how it happened for me. I felt a bit like a sitting duck to my lerp. I had an experience in my childhood, which my mother, who, by the way, also was a doctor, had me out of wedlock, you know, 1957 in Germany, Bavaria, 
Catholic family. And so she hid me in this orphanage for two years and then presented me as adopted, which was more face-saving, I guess, in post-war Germany. And then my relatives were rather dismissive. Nobody quite knew where I was from. And so those patterns of not fitting quite in or not being seen or a bit of abandonment and rejection and 25 years of therapy later, I definitely put my time in. But there are still situations, you know, where I feel a bit of rejection or abandonment or, you know, left outness or something. And it actually does help me to know, yeah, I have this, let's say, vulnerability in my system and to be compassionate with that. I think that's an important one. Then I can move on. I don't get stuck there. Then I don't fall into the pothole, you might say. Or maybe I fall into the pothole for a little bit, but I recover quicker. I guess that's what I realized. I'm not perfectly sparkly, unaffected now, but I recover a lot quicker. That's a huge deal. So let's keep moving through these steps. Step one was recognizing your alert. We may have touched on, or you may have touched on step two, which is being mindful of body thoughts and feelings. But please say more if there's more to be said. Well, these are the basic mindfulness skills to notice, oh yeah, thinking, you know, I'm thinking here. And yeah, anger arising, anger falling away. I just love it how Jack Cornfield always says it with this very sweet voice. Oh, anger, 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 arising and falling away. And, you know, in some ways it changed my relationship to anger to just see it as this passing phenomenon. So maybe that's what's important to say about that and also to know that there's always change. Nothing stays. If we just be with it for a while, then it changes all by itself. And I think that is a really important Buddhist truth. You know, I started in Sri Lanka in 1980. They always said, everything is perishable. <laughs> I think that's very relieving. Especially so once you get it molecularly, because it's one thing to hear everything changes. And I think intellectually, it's hard to argue with that. But the more we do what you're recommending, which is being mindful of what there is to be mindful of, your body, your thoughts, your feelings, you see on a sub-intellectual but powerful level that every, yeah, there's no ground to stand on here. And that can be a source of relief. It is. It's a big relief. You know, it's like everything changes, even the worst situations. And that's really important. And then that leads, I think, if you look at the cycle there, to compassion. Compassion to ourselves and to others, because we all are caught in this human condition. As humans, we are kind of wired in a, you might say, strange way. <laughs> Sometimes humans are interesting and strange creatures who create a lot of trouble and hurt for each other as we see in the world, just looking at the news. And so having a bit of compassion for this human condition, whether it is in ourselves or in others, and having a bit of compassion for our lurkedness, 
And again, it's not self-pity and compassion for others. It's not condoning wrongdoing or whitewashing. It's just seeing, wow, we are, we are actually just humans. And that's quite important. Coming up, Dr. Weiniger talks about the difference between longing and intention. And she talks about the practice of asking yourself a question and then making space and time, maybe in meditation, for an answer to emerge, which has actually sometimes worked quite well for me. So we'll talk about that after this. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&M's, uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. So you just covered steps three and four, three being seeing your lerp with self-compassion, four being healing complex suffering with compassion for all. And I guess that leads me to the question, well, how do you develop self-compassion and other compassion? I would say there are two ways. There is a Theravadan and the Mahayana way, and I love both. And let me explain that. From mindfulness, traditional mindfulness point of view, we cultivate compassion with meta practices, you know, wishing ourselves well, wishing ourselves to be safe, wishing ourselves to be free. It's very effective. And, you know, I've worked for decades with these practices and I love them. However, they still come from our prefrontal cortex. You know, they're still kind of coming from our manager mind that focuses. So as we get more in the Tibetan informed practices where we rest in a, in a wider field of awareness, which has the elements of spaciousness and of knowing and of love, you might say, which is quite interesting that that's where we end up when we really go deep into meditation. Then also the compassion, in a way that's compassion with the great sea, can come from that place. 
compassion is already there if we just allow ourselves to touch into it. So there is the compassion that we cultivate. And I think there's both. It's not one or the other. I think it's both really wonderful and necessary. However, the compassion that is still, you might say, ego-based can lead to burnout. We see that in many healthcare workers now during COVID. My husband is a hospice palliative care doctor. You know, it's like what we gave several in-services for the whole hospital because there, there's just so much burnout. People are just burning out right and left. And so if we make the container a little bigger, we can rest in that. Then compassion is boundless, then then it's just there. And that was an experience I had in Sri Lanka, actually, in, in this Theravadan monastery. Maybe I was just really ready for sitting that after a few weeks, I stayed there a few months, I just got into this place of deep quiet and being kind of in the field, you know, as I, I learn now from the more pointing out instructions. And I didn't know what would happen if I go deeper and deeper and deeper into meditation. Uh, as a post-war German, I was wondering, is there maybe original terror? What is there? You know, I didn't know what I would find if I would actually become really quiet and really just rest in this field of awareness. And for me, the surprising thing was that there was actually a sense of wellness and ease and fullness, and you might say love. And I think many people have that experience after long retreats. Let me see if I can state some of this back to you just to make sure I've got it. So the Theravada approach, Theravada being old school Buddhism, is often taught in the form of the Brahma Viharas, the divine abodes, which sounds a little grandiose, but it's actually quite, in my experience, practical and doable and has been studied quite a bit in the labs, where you envision various people or beings and repeat phrases like, may you be happy or may you be free from suffering. That you describe, if I recall, that's a little bit cognitive or ego-based. By comparison, the later schools of Buddhism, including the Tibetan school, would have you get deep into a state of meditation where you see that there's this compassion within us all the time, this love that's within us all the time. No development needed. It's just there, and you can tap into that. And I think you are arguing for a combination of these two approaches. That's right. And I don't think that the Theravadan approach is just cognitive. There's definitely deep feeling, but it still comes from me to you. But I, I would love to see a coming together of those approaches. Is the latter approach available to people who don't have the time or the resources to go on a long retreat? Yes, actually, I find that is the beautiful aspect of that. I think those Tibetan practices until recently were quite hidden, you know, hard to get. 
they're still a little bit hard to get. And Tibetans put a lot on, of stipulation, like 250,000 prostrations or, you know, you had to have a certain teacher. Or, but it seems now, and maybe it's timely for where we are in the world, the cat is kind of crawling out of the bag. Or I would say it has crawled out of the bag. And uh, I studied for uh, six years with Dan Brown, who teaches those pointing out practices. And I think Locke Kelly is, he was uh, also a clinical social worker, but he teaches them in a fairly simple way. And what I liked about it, and I do both, I'm a both end kind of a person. In the past, I felt I had to wait for my 10-day fall retreat and spring retreat, which I did for years, you know, or maybe a four-week retreat to have the sense of well-being, bliss, luminosity in the end for maybe two, three days or maybe four days if I was really lucky. And then I would have to wait for the fall or the spring to go back. And those pointing out instructions allow us to have those experiences in our morning meditation or maybe through glimpses during the day. And I think there has been a little bit of a worry that those practices, which are very powerful, could be used as an escape. You know, goodbye world here, I'm gone, you know, have your messiness by yourself. So I think if you bring all those practices, the Theravadan, the Mahayana, the Vajrayana, whatever they are, in a secular and easily accessible way back to help us as humans right now to make our world better. So that as journalists or activists or whatever we are, you know, healthcare providers, mothers, fathers, teenagers, that we don't burn out. Because what I see so much is people kind of shutting down. I teach a lot of meditation. And in our Monday night group, there are a whole bunch of UCSB graduate students. And we talk about meaning, about self-actualization, on how to be in this world at this time. And it's hard for young people. You know, we see that in the increased suicide rate and mental health problem rate. And so I think we need any well-working practice we can get to help us hold our wits and our ability to be useful and compassionate in the situation. Let's move on to step five, which is creating mindfully. There's a colon there. Creating mindfully, colon, setting clear intention and dedicated motivation. What does that mean? Well, in Buddhist practice, intention always has been important. I remember Jack quoting that phrase. I think it's probably from a wise person to say, intention leads to behaviors. Behaviors create habits. Habits has something to do with the forming of our personality. And our personality often leads to our destiny. Yes, there are things happening from the outside, but definitely the inside has something to do with it. And intention setting is really important. And actually, I might even put one thing before intention, which is longing. 
it, it comes more from the mystical Christian background. I think St. Augustine said, the path to God doesn't come in steps, but in longings. And longing is more from the heart. Intention could be from the heart. Actually, I think the Dalai Lama calls it a heart's intention. Maybe a heart's intention is actually a longing. Maybe, you know, it could probably be seen as that. So sometimes we don't have it quite formulated where we want to go, but we have this longing. I think sometimes it's called the holy longing. And to take that serious, to take that uh, longing serious in us and let it formulate as an intention. And that's then something that can be cast forward. In very practical terms, how would we figure out what our intention is and then make a practice out of setting it as a true north? Mm -hmm. I love that true north. That's often my image because the north star is the one star that doesn't move. That's always there. And my husband and I, we call it the bodhicitta star because bodhicitta, the longing to decrease suffering for all beings, is our true north. I think if we listen to our longing, it's like uh, maybe a longing for meaning. Like many people kind of are stuck in a hamster wheel situation where we just soldier along in our lives and we start to feel kind of maybe burned out or depressed or anxious or dissatisfied and maybe need more and more props to keep it ourselves going. And then to maybe sit under the star, maybe under the North Star, and to feel what is it really in myself that longs to go somewhere. And I think it's not just where specifically do we want to go, but before then, are we allowing ourselves to long? You know, once we allow ourselves to long, then the intention or the, the vision appears. It's like when people walk a labyrinth. You probably have seen those labyrinths. So they already decided, oh, I want to ask a question. I think that's already a really important point. You know, yeah, I, I, I actually have a question. And then when we do this labyrinth or the meditation or whatever it is, then quite readily what is important appears. So it's more like giving it space, making the decision to give it space. You can ask the question, like, what do I actually care about? And if you seed that question in your mind and let it germinate, maybe you're doing some meditation during this period of time. And if you're listening in the right way, an answer may emerge. Right. There is this practice, which I actually learned when I first came to the States in 1985. It was kind of a bit of a new agey practice, but it was so useful that I kind of dug it out and reformulated for us here, which is that sometimes it's important to know where we are Let's say my husband now, you know, he's working for 40 years as a hospice palliative care physician. 
as much as he loves his job, he realizes he's coming to a place where he would love to do less maybe of medication prescribing and more of the teaching he really wants to do. And so then it might be important to really describe where we are. So it's not an ungrounded wish or affirmation, but it's grounded. You know, here I am, I'm going every day, eight hours and do this very hard work, which I'm now doing for 40 years. And I just feel it's too much right now. It's becoming too much. It doesn't feel right anymore. It's too exhausting, you know, and then to say, oh, where do I want to be? I want to, I want to be somewhere where I do something, maybe less hours that is more essential. You know, the, the parts of what I do every day that really speak to my talent. And I don't know quite what that is exactly, but I know how it would feel like if I was there. There would be more of a sense of lightness and maybe more of a sense of connection to be away from the bureaucracy of the hospital, to hold those two poles, you know, where we are and where we want to be. And it's a bit like an archer with an arrow, you know, the Zen of archery. If we hold that bow and arrow and we, in a way, redefine the tragic gap as a creative gap, because often we say, oh, here I am, poor me, here I am stuck, and oh, that's where I would like to be. And then often what we do is we say, I don't really want this anyhow. Maybe I'm okay working another 10 years or until I'm 80, <laughs> you know, something like that. So we decrease the tension by saying either what we have isn't so bad or we don't really want what we want. But if we can hold both and say, well, this could actually create a creative tension, a structural tension, mindfully, and just hold this, then usually it moves over and it becomes clear what it is, what the next step is. I just have tried this now for, gosh, 37 years, and it's working really well. So you're looking at the chasm between where you are and where you want to be. And instead of looking at that as a problem, you're looking at that as a potential source of creativity. Right. And that's not easy because we are so used to fall into, I think, Parker Palmer calls it the tragic gap. And in a way, we have to maybe with our mindfulness skills, they are very helpful here, remind ourselves to see it also as a structural tension, as a creative tension, and then allow something new to happen. And so that's one way of working with it. And another way is just to give it some time to look what your heart's intention is. And that is the intention that's not just practical from your thinking mind, but that actually feels congruent with your values. And there's again the true north, the bodhicitta star, good for the well-being of all, including ourselves. Coming up, Dr. Weininger says there's no magic forgiveness button, but there is a sensible place to start. She'll tell us what that is, plus what to do when we hit a wall in our meditation practice right after this. <laughs> 
When it comes to picking the perfect treats for your dog, Stuart makes the choice easy by keeping it real. Real ingredients, real nutrients, real benefits. Stuart dog treats are free from additives, corn, soy, wheat, and grains. Plus, they're freeze-dried to lock in all the great nutrition and natural flavor your furry friend deserves. Stuart freeze-dried dog treats. Big, tail-wagging nutritional benefits. Available on Amazon.com today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Looking at the clock, I realized we're never going to make it through all 12 steps, and that's on me because I'm asking you too many follow-up questions. But let me skip forward to step nine, which is forgiveness, which is a tricky one for a lot of people, especially if, I would imagine the case for many people, our LERP has been created by some mistreatment at the hands of others. Right. Yes, forgiveness is a really tough one. I myself had actually a big problem with forgiveness. I think one as a post-war German who can ever forgive us for what happened in Germany in World War II. And then also I saw forgiveness sometimes being misused by churches. If you're a good Christian, you forgive. It's sometimes used in a self-serving way and in a flippant way and kind of a bit of a moral bullying. <laughs> and so it was really Jack Cornfield from whom I learned that forgiveness is really very much about us. You know, that when we hold this burden of resentment, this burden of holding a grudge, then it's kind of like becoming toxic for us. I think the big insight was that forgiveness is something that's important not just for the other, but for me. Jack Cornfield says, the person who hurt you is probably sitting in the Bahamas and drinking a Mai Tai. Even if you hold your grudge against them, they're probably gone. You know, they're over the mountains. They might not even care anymore. But we are stuck with this feeling of resentment, this feeling of a grudge, with this burden that we carry. And so it's helpful to us to forgive the others. Often it's also about forgiving ourselves. Sometimes we need to forgive ourselves that we were in the wrong time, in the wrong place. So we can blame ourselves endlessly. And so that's important. What is also important is that we can't just press the forgiveness button, say, okay, I forgive now. That's not very natural. But what we need to do sometimes is go a half step, which is hold the intention to forgive. I 
I had once, I think it's already 20 years ago, I was teaching at a local retreat center and there was a, a gentleman there who told us this story. He said, somebody really hurt me very badly and I just couldn't forgive him. And so what I did is I decided to forgive him in 10 years, that I would give myself 10 years to forgive him. And once I made this decision, actually I was able to give much easier and much quicker. And so I find this half step of holding the intention to forgive really important. I was just going to ask you actually before that last section of your answer, forgiveness sounds nice, but how do we actually do it? But I think that's an answer at the very least, which is you can set the intention, we've talked about intention, to forgive, but give yourself a break in the process and know there's no magic button. Let me see if I can sneak in a few more steps here. Step 11 is letting in the mystery. What does that mean? Well, I think sometimes we just can't get there with our diligent mindfulness practice and compassion practice and watching our thoughts, our body, our feelings. And the more diligently we practice, it's just we hit a wall sometimes. Sometimes the doors are still closed. And what is helpful to me is sometimes to, you might say, ask for help. And there's this beautiful little book by Titnat Han, The Energy of Prayer. And he said, sometimes it's important to pray, even though we don't know exactly what we are praying to. And it's more about opening up and kind of surrendering. It's a movement of surrendering. We are not trying to control this. We are just opening up to whatever the great mystery is. And there maybe I come back also to mystical practices, whether they are Christian or Kabbalah or Muslim or maybe just whatever you made up yourself, or Tibetan practices, where we think there is a, a greater context to life. And it might not be a person. It might just be a sense, a depending, co-rising sense of awareness that is already there. And if we can let ourselves touch that, actually quite experientially, I feel especially the Tibetan pointing out instructions are allowing us to touch into that quite experientially. Then we are in this wider context and then sometimes a door will open from there. And I just remember that Jack Cornfield said, if we put a spoonful of salt into a glass of water, it's very salty. And if we put a spoonful of salt into a lake, then it's not salty at all. So if we make the container bigger or the non-container, the space bigger, if we can tap into something that is already there. That's going to be, I suspect, hard for some people to grok this notion of, maybe not, but this container or non-container you're referring to. If I had to put it in the simplest possible terms, the idea is you, you can see that you're angry or you can see that anger is playing out against a completely mysterious backdrop of consciousness. Who even knows that you're angry? Like, who's the you that knows you're angry and who's even asking that question? 
And so then you throw yourself out of our day-to-day seemingly solid movie of life and into a usefully weirder space. That's right. In a way, that's what we are doing. I, I just have seen actually my oldest son go through this because he's in the end of medical school and a year and a half ago he asked me can you teach me meditation because he was stressed out and so at first I started with mindfulness instructions as we know them and then I thought well let me try these pointing out instructions and he's very much the young scientist you know who doesn't believe anything that's in any way weird or strange and so in a way he actually has quite an aptitude to experience it, almost like against his cognitive will, you might say. And so he just decided to go with the experience and not follow the urge to define it. And so sometimes we just have to allow ourselves to follow the direct experience. And you know, we humans are limited in our understanding. And I don't think that is so hard to understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. You've referenced pointing out instructions a few times. What are those instructions? Those are instructions that come from the Dzogchen Mahamudra tradition. And they are instructions that help us have this experience of a wider awareness, not just as moment and moment, but an awareness that is, has a field quality that's already there, that's everywhere and suffuses everything. You might say a pantheistic without a view, and that can be experienced. And quite frankly, I think in, in the mindfulness tradition, it's experienced as well. In the end of retreats, just it's more low-balled and people don't really talk about it. But it's nevertheless there. And so those pointing out instructions help us quite clearly to come to this place of experiencing this uh, or having glimpses of this. I think that's the new term for this in a more easy way. And the thing is, it's actually not that difficult. I think there was just this big mythology around it that made it seem so difficult, but it's not. And I think many mystical traditions have caught on to that. Unfortunately, you have to often be a card-carrying member of one of those traditions to get that knowledge how to get there. But I think this is the time and place in history where it should be more democratically available. So you kind of told us what the instructions were pointing at, but if we wanted to get one of these aforementioned glimpses, what could we do to get a sense of this awareness that is suffused through everything, which can sound grandiose or hard to grok, but it's actually tasteable. So how do we get there? Right, there are different ways. I think Mingyo or Sokni Rinpoche are teaching those kinds of things. Then Dan Brown, who unfortunately died a few weeks ago, he did, and some of his students, like Dustin DePurna, teaches it. Then Locke Kelly teaches it quite accessible. I teach it. I make all my meditations accessible for free because I, I have a day job. I'm a clinical psychologist. And so I always think money and spiritual practice is a difficult one. So I decided to just teach for free. 
I just think, especially when dealing with LERPs, which can be so painful, especially if we have a painful and difficult history, it's very helpful to ground ourselves in this wider field. And maybe also want to say that mindfulness as we know it is practiced easier with less effort from this wider perspective. If anybody's uh, thirsting for specifics, let me, I'll give you a, a specific practice that, that's been taught to me. And, uh, and Dr. Weininger, you can tell me if this is in line with what you're discussing. But um, Joseph Goldstein, who's I've worked with personally for quite a while, talks about looking at your experience through the passive voice. So you can be sitting, meditating, and maybe once you've got a little bit, you're, you're a few minutes into it, you've got a little bit of rhythm or continuity in your mindfulness, your concentration's up a little bit, your mind is stable. You might just say, sounds are being known. So you're using the passive voice. Mm. And then you add a question, which is known by what? Oh, yeah. And in the asking of that question, you can see that this feeling of you that is always there is not the one who's knowing the sound of the doorbell or the birds in the trees. That is being known in some wider, unfindable, uh, broad, yawning chasm of pure <laughs> consciousness, or there's no way to talk about this without sounding very, uh, like, stoned. But... um that simple practice doesn't work for everybody, but it really works for me, and I think it might work for you, is a way into what Dr. Weininger is talking about, I believe. Do you agree, Dr. Weininger? I do wholeheartedly agree. It reminds me of uh, the emptiness practices, emptiness of self, emptiness of emotions, which basically is about exactly what you described, looking back at the looker or the seer, and seeing that that there isn't really anything there that's a solid entity that is lasting and uh, concrete. You know, that we all are these um, clouds of experiences that come and go, and that that's actually fine, and that awareness is here, not only in our prefrontal cortex, but it's actually there in, in, in a much wider way and that we can rest in that. I love that little practice by Joseph. And where, why this is relevant is that, to, to your topic of LERPs, is that you can see that you are not your longstanding recurrent painful patterns. And in fact, on some fundamental level, there's no you to have a pattern anyway. And that's the putting of salt into a lake instead of a, a glass. It just gives you a wider perspective. Exactly. I think that is, that's very correct. And um, it's just making it a little lighter. You know, it's like making us a little bit less dense and a little bit less concrete and, and heavy. It's almost like bringing a bit more oxygen into the system so it's not also congested and and stuck. Uh, so that's very right. And um, I was wondering, do we have time to talk about the last step? We do. Go for it, please. Step 12. Well, which is service? 
I was telling the story of Jimmy in my book, who's actually a very close friend of Joseph Goldstein. Jimmy, who is a person who was homeless many years and lives here now in Santa Barbara. And he's very proud to be mentioned on your show. And he has gone through hell and back as a heroin addict, as a orphan, many terrible things happening to him in his life. But what he does, he has a ministry for the dying homeless. And he really helps those that are dying in the streets. He sits with them and he says that helps him not to relapse, not to despair, to work with his own moods. And I think all together we can learn from Jimmy as we open our hearts and we are there available for others. We are less self-preoccupied. And I would say self-preoccupation is one of our Western foibles, if I might say. Even in our meditation, we can become self-preoccupied and perfectionistic. And so I think as we open our hearts and we include others in our work, very much like Dr. Rieu in The Plague. I don't know if you know the story, you know, this North African town that Camus describes where people are dying of the plague, but the hero, Dr. Rieu, is helping anyhow, not knowing whether what he's doing will actually make a difference or not. It makes a little difference here and there, but he doesn't know the outcome. And so I think That is important in this day and age. And I think the Dalai Lama calls it wise selfish. We are wise selfish in that we help others. I've always loved that expression from the Dalai Lama that we're all selfish, but if you want to do it right, you should be compassionate and generous because that's actually what's going to make you happiest. It's a nice co-opting of our normal tendencies. Dr. Weininger, I want to thank you for coming on. In closing, can you just remind us of the name of the book and where we can find it? It's called uh, Heart Medicine, How to Stop Painful Patterns and Find Peace and Freedom at Last. And you can get it at Amazon, Goodread, Barnes & Nobles, Indie Books, on my website, radleyweiningerphd.com. And uh, I also encourage you to look at our website of our nonprofit, Mindful Heart Programs. And there we have a meditation calendar and many resources. And otherwise, just join us. For example, we have a morning meditation, which is very popular. People just pop in and out. And there's no registration, just a waiting room, no fee. And you can just come and go. I just thought in this time, which is quite difficult for many people, we just try to make it easy. Well, thanks for uh, coming on the show and making my job easy. Mm, thank you. It was really delightful to talk to you. Thanks again to Dr. Weininger. Before I let you go, one important order of business. Our team is preparing a special episode about anxiety, and we would love your help. If you have questions about anxiety that you want answered, please record a voice memo and send it to us via email at listener at 10%.com. That's listener at 10% all one word spelled out, dot com. We might just play and answer your question right here on the show. 
This show is made by Gabrielle Zuckerman, DJ Kashmir, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, Maria Wortel, Samuel Johns, and Jen Poyant. And we get our audio engineering from the good folks over at Ultraviolet Audio. We'll see you right back here on Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me DJ and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.